the insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Christopher Cerf. He's New York Times bestselling author, composer, lyricist, uh, and we're going to be talking about his new book, Spinglish, the Definitive Dictionary of Deliberately Deceptive Language. Um, Chris has, well, spent eight years as a senior editor at Random House, and is the co-creator of the award-winning PBS Literary Edition program Between the Lions. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Chris. Thank you, Catherine. It's great to be here. And I should mention, you've written so many other books and composed so many other uh, programs and television and PBS and all of those kinds of things. But now we're going to talk about Spinglish, the definitive dictionary of deliberately deceptive language. Okay, so what is Spinglish? What are we talking about? What is Spinglish? Well, Spinglish is really English twisted around to, as we say in the subtitle, to become deceptive, to pull the wool over people's eyes, either to cover up something bad you did and make it sound okay, or to put something over on people that you want to do to them without letting them really know. Okay, as I understand it from your book, okay, we're with deceptive, lying, uh, manipulating, those are all the words that come to mind, but we do this apparently uh, in business, sports, the arts, and I guess medicine, any field that we can think of, we use this, this, this language of Spinglish. So give us some examples of exactly, you know, in any one of those fields, you know, an well, example. <laughs> as you say, we, they come from all fields, but um, just a few that that come to mind. You might hear uh, a politician talking about revenue enhancement. That means raising your taxes, but it makes it sound good. Or an, a politician of a different stripe might talk about pro-growth uh, pro tax policies, which means giving tax cuts to the rich and corporations and maybe increasing your taxes, for that matter. So uh, that's a political example, uh, perhaps a, an even more amusing one if we in retrospect, is when uh, Jimmy Carter uh, tried to rescue the hostages uh, during the Iran hostage crisis and failed. He called it an incomplete success. That's a term I would recommend anyone use when they fail. Okay, <laughs> so if you're talking about Jimmy Carter, we're talking about we've been doing this, well, at least in politics, for a long time. Uh, oh, we've been doing it all the way back. Julius Caesar talked about pacification, uh, making goal peaceful when that just meant killing hundreds of thousands of, of the people who live there. So, yeah, yeah but have, it's been going have, on forever, but, but it happens way beyond politics, as you said. In business, for example, people talk about right-sizing a company. That sounds really good, but it really basically means the company was losing lots of money and they had to fire everybody. All right, so we're talk I just wanted for, you said it goes back to Julius Caesar, at least in politics, that we've been using Sping, Spinglish to sort of to deceive people, or to lie, I guess, about, uh, uh, or to not tell the truth. Um, but it seems to me, have we kind of, and I'm going back, let's say, just say to the 50s up until now, um, it seems like we're using this, the Spinglish, as you describe it, even more and more today. Is it just because we have more access to all this information, Internet, uh, or communication? We you know, communicate more with each other, even globally. Uh, but are we using this Spinglish to, to, to create these kinds of lies? And I keep using the word manipulate, but to uh, um, present things in a way that aren't true so that we can accomplish our goals, but we're kind of fooling people in terms of what we're doing. 
Yes, well, I think it's always happened, but public relations has become a, a, you know, a much more pervasive art than it used to be. It's a fairly new industry, you know, less than 100 years old to have professional PR people. But you mentioned the Internet, and I think that's really important. And cable TV news is important, too. It's on 24 hours a day, and everyone is looking for a scoop. So uh, on, as a result of that, politicians and business people are being more and more careful how they phrase things. And it's true. You, if you remember uh, Senator Allen a few years ago uh, mentioned the word macaca, uh, a really insulting term, during his campaign. Now, years ago, he would have said that and 20 people would have heard it and maybe somebody would have written about it somewhere and it would have gone away. But because he was videotaped and it ended up as a viral video on the Internet, he couldn't get away from it and it cost him the election. All right, so this is an example of politics, and you know, I, I guess uh, it, you know, I was watching the election, the uh, debates last night, and one thing that kept I thought of your book, Spanglish, because they kept talking about that our president doesn't talk about radical Islamic extremists; he's not using the right word, and there these Republican candidates are using the right word. So, what is the implication for that? What are they trying to tell us? Uh, I must <laughs> say, I'm puzzled by that myself because he's using some slightly different word. That's why. The world is in terrible shape. They kept saying also that uh, Obama and Hillary Clinton, who are always joined together, even though she hasn't been part of his administration for a long time, but they kept saying that uh, that they're betraying the country. Christie gave a specific example of their betraying the country by pointing out that the L.A. schools had to be closed yesterday because of a terror threat. Well, of course, uh, exactly what... Obama and Hillary had to do with that threat, which turned out to be a complete hoax. Uh, I'm not exactly concerned. Uh, I don't completely understand, but the impression they gave, and it was well well done, was that Obama and Clinton had been so weak that the L.A. schools weren't safe. So what are the implications? I mean, if this is the kind of dialogue or rhetoric that we, we use all the time and we accept it, I mean, what are the implications for us in terms of, of politics and government? And if we are, I mean, it seems like if we're covering up our language and we're not defining things as they really are, then we act on that. We act on, on this Spanglish, uh, and maybe you can give more examples of that politically. Um, what are the implications for the way we actually conduct business, 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 or, or political business? Well, I think people have always tried to, present things in the best possible light. Uh, and it's, I think it's instructive to actually try to look at what they're doing and to try to parse what they're really saying. And that's a way to be a more responsible voter. And it's also a way to keep from being built if you're talking about marketing or business. For example, somebody might say to you, something's available at a fraction of its former price. Well, that sounds great, but the fraction could be 99 one hundredths. You know, it could be almost <laughs> the same price as it was the day before. So really, we're trying to have some fun pointing out these tricks, but it's also useful to be able to spot them. All right, so I guess one of the purposes of the book you're saying, yeah, it's fun, we get a laugh out of it, but at the same time, it's serious, too, and we need to be aware that we are being, I guess, marketed to in this way and, and using language that really doesn't accurately describe what the, well, whether it's the politician or whoever is talking about. I mean, it seems to me there's a, there's a lot of seriousness to it. Now, I've had a lot of experience as a, a social worker and dealing with uh, long-term illnesses and uh, what they call now the end-of-life conversations because no one ever says that anybody... Died. They passed well, that's away. A or passed. Example. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it does affect the way in which we treat patients, we treat families. Um, so I think in the medical community, it. I mean, we use it a lot to sort of cover well, over. Oh yes, and for lots of different reasons, Catherine. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, one sort of humorous one, but it still still hurts a little. Uh, one hospital puts on its bills the term uh, mucus recovery system and charges 11 extra dollars for that for all their patients. It turns out that a mucus recovery system is just a box of Kleenex. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> so it can be used to, they can be used to, to 
justify unfair pricing, or or it can be used to excuse uh, something horrible. Another hospital um, talked about a patient's failure to fulfill his wellness potential. That means he died, but the hospital didn't want to admit it. And is that used? <laughs> is that one <laughs> hospital, or is that something now that 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 hospitals? You know, or many hospitals use. Do they use that term? That's well. They they use terms like it. These are two specific examples, and of course, uh, we're not always totally fair because everything we have in this book, somebody actually said we didn't make up anything. But of course, not every hospital charges you for mucus recovery systems, but many hospitals tend to do that kind of thing to justify their bills. And in fact, they don't even call themselves hospitals anymore. They call themselves wellness centers because they want to accentuate the positive, so you'll want to go there. Uh, I used to be, uh, when I was doing clinical social work in a hospital, and I was on the death and dying committee, which had to do with end-of-life issues and how you were going to, uh, you know, work with families, doctors, social workers, and other, and therapists and uh, they didn't like the sound of that when we they called the meeting because of the death and dying committee was not a good thing to hear over the loudspeaker. <laughs> no, that's not a good name. <laughs> so it changed to the patient care coordinating committee meeting. How's that for a 180? <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, that sounds a lot less threatening. Yeah, I mean some of this is just common sense. It's not all wrong. To, some some euphemisms are just used to make you feel better. I don't have any particular problem with that. Our book isn't really about that so much as about people using euphemisms to pull the wool over your eyes, to call something like a ship sinking an anomaly, for example. Was the Titanic going down an anomaly? Certainly, it's not what's supposed to happen, but an awful lot of people lost their lives in that anomaly. But isn't it serious, uh, Chris, in terms of like, yeah, I mean, it makes people aware, but if you start... Naming, if you start calling things by what they're really not, then you kind of, maybe I'm going back to something I mentioned earlier, but then you start acting on things that aren't the truth or acting on definitions of situations uh, that aren't the truth. And that's kind of doesn't, I don't think that bodes too well. Um, Oh, I agree. I mean, you know, everybody who's been a demagogue in history has done that. Uh, One of the interesting things in this campaign to me has been Trump uh, and Carson did it a lot last night, too, talking about political correctness. Uh, political correctness at its worst is political itself and, and using very oversen- you know, being oversensitive about everything so you can't talk about everything. But the way Trump is using it is the opposite. It's an excuse to insult people because you can say anything offensive if if your defense against somebody complaining about that is, oh, you're just being politically correct. So that enables him to talk about deporting millions of people or breaking up families or um, calling Mexicans, Mexicans rapists. Ordinarily, you'd be criticized for that, but he's, he just says people are being politically correct when they do that, which gives him a blank check. Very yeah, and, and, you, uh, and you wrote a book on politically correct, right? I mean, uh, a few years ago. Yeah, that Henry was one Beard of... and I, who collaborated on Spinglish, also did a book called The Official Politically Correct Dictionary a few years ago. And that book was making fun of, of, of a different kind of language uh, aberration, which is the kind of thing where you, where you use the word fat-tractive instead of fat, for example. And, you know, in the, there we were talking about about people going way out of their way to avoid saying anything insulting. That doesn't necessarily have to be bad, uh, but Spinglish often is. Uh, let's give other examples. Uh, Spinglish, okay, because they're similar, the politically correct, and, and I can see how Spinglish probably evolved from your politically correct uh, book. But, uh, you know, we're talking about politics, medicine, uh, what other areas, and you give a lot of examples, obviously, in the book, but what other areas do we do that and, and give us some examples of, of Spinglish? Well, uh, there are lots of them, but one that is filled with rather amusing examples, at least to my way of thinking, is real estate advertising. For example, you might read that uh, a house you want to look at is cozy or, or it's adorable. That usually means it's absolutely tiny. 
Uh, or you might read that a house has incredibly convenient access to everywhere. That probably means it's right next to a highway entrance, you know, or that it's, it's got a beautiful sunny outlook, which means there isn't a tree in sight. Um, so, or that it, that the, that the backyard is wonderfully easy to maintain, which means it's probably just a concrete slab. Uh, that industry is particularly notable for, for using Spinglish. So if you have some awareness of it, that they're using Spinglish, you can really kind of cut to the chase and not waste your time, right, if you're looking for real estate or even if you're online. Uh, or well, talking- for sure. If you see an ad for a handyman special, uh, that means that, that the house needs a complete teardown, probably. You gave an example, and, and also this was in the workplace. Actually, they call it, uh, and I don't, I've never heard this term used before, but I guess it is hands-on mentoring. Uh, and hands-on mentoring, uh, I, I never would have guessed what you know. This is Spanglish. What that actually really means? Sexual relations with a junior employee. Well, yes, and that one is probably was used facetiously, but it was used uh, when someone was accused of that. Um, and people have said, for example, that uh, Bill Clinton was guilty of hands-on mentoring while he was president. I did have a question about, to my social work background, if you keep using words, whether it's in, at, you know, at school or work or with your children, for instance, we use a lot of these kinds of, I think, Spinglish, not really talking about sex education, for instance. Uh, we don't use the right words when we're trying to talk about uh, sex to our children or, or drug addiction or some of the things that we need to talk about to them, and we don't use the correct words. Uh, we uh, use the, the I, Spinglish. I mean, what's the impact on that? Um, you know, we aren't really communicating properly. Um, I think there's some real serious repercussions, and they're not good ones. I think you're probably right about that. Certainly, uh, some things really are horrible, and we need to deal with them directly. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to be sensitive, but if you are so sensitive that you hide the truth, um, then then you're setting maybe you're, if you're doing it with your kids, you're setting them up for a, a rude shock later on that they won't be able to handle. So I agree and, with you. And, uh, and also, I think the impact emotionally, if you continue to. Um, use this deliberately deceptive language, as we're referring to Spinglish, if you continue to use that most of the time, that there, emotionally there has to be some kind of an impact for the person who's using it and then the person who's receiving this all the time. This kind of like, because deliberately deceptive language is, is, to me, it's pretty serious stuff. Well, yes, actually, I do remember what we were talking about when we were cut off, and it's relevant. Uh, a Vermont firm uh, talked about offering people a career change opportunity uh, because the guy couldn't bear to admit that his company was failing and that he was going to really destroy the lives of a whole lot of people who were depending upon him. You know, so. But I don't think that really fooled anybody. But sometimes it does. I think that the, the person talking sometimes forgets what they're covering up because they say it so long. And it can be very self-convincing. When the Exxon uh, Valdez accident happened up in Alaska a while back, and, and uh, there was a terrible oil spill up there, as you may recall, the uh, Exxon PR person said that everyone is complaining about how the so-called beaches of <laughs> Prince William Sound are, are being soiled. Is it, if it might be true, but it doesn't matter. Well, if you believe that it's okay to spill oil on some rocks instead of a beach, you've convinced yourself you didn't do anything wrong either. But, of course, it was an environmental disaster. Yeah, I think that's a good example, and maybe that's what I'm talking about, because I think the implications of that, obviously, in terms of who we vote for, are, you know, the kind of information that we get that's important for us in term, environmentally, all of those kinds of things really gets lost if we use, you know, using that kind of, of language. So is anything, besides being aware, is there anything we should be doing about it? I mean, um, well, uh, I don't think there's much we can do. We're not really going to stop people from doing this. So I think being aware 
is um, is probably the best thing. And, uh, you know, we should certainly be aware when we're doing it ourselves, which I think most often we are to begin with. But your point's really well taken, Catherine. Eventually, if you say the same thing over and over again, it may sound okay. For example, um, logging companies, when they clear-cut a forest, they, they found that that wasn't a very popular thing, and they started calling it forest regeneration because, obviously, trees can grow in the place where you cut them all down. Uh, after a while, that sounds like a good policy. Or wildlife management is the same thing. If you kill a bunch of animals by hunting, well, you say you're doing wildlife management and you feel good about yourself. Yeah, those are good examples. And I'm also thinking about, uh, I think, a, an issue or obviously a major one of the major issues of today, uh, we changed, didn't we? We talked about global warming, and now we talk about climate change. It, it was, isn't that a sort of a shift? And it's easier to accept climate change rather than global warming. Is that well? Yeah. Now that actually was a term that was popularized by a very brilliant uh, user of this kind of language, Frank Luntz, who is a pollster who actually recommends to candidates um, the words that they should use. And he's very, very clever at it. Climate change was one of his terms. Well, he recommended the use of it because, as you say, it sounds less threatening, and therefore we have to do, it's less important to do something about it. Uh, He also very cleverly changed, recommended changing the term inheritance tax to death tax because it's easy to convince people that they shouldn't have to pay a tax just for dying. So if you want to repeal inheritance taxes, it's good to call them death taxes. The the Democrats responded by trying to call them wealth taxes, which means if you have so much money, of course you should be taxed. But uh, death tax proved to be a more popular term, if that's the right word, than wealth tax. So the Republicans won that debate. Yeah, I remember when that sort of, I remember when I started hearing death tax as opposed to inheritance tax. That's a good example. Um, here's one that, you know, has to do with what we eat and food. You've got this as an example, I guess, that you call uh, evaporated cane juice, which is really <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, that one, I can't, that's awfully clever, I think. Uh, if you list sugar as an ingredient in your product, Somebody might think it might not be the healthiest product to buy if it's filled with sugar. So some of the uh, food uh, producers began to list evaporated cane juice in their ingredients instead. Evaporated cane juice, of course, is sugar, but uh, it sounds healthier, doesn't it? And it also, you have no idea what it is unless you think about it, so it, it goes right by you. So have they actually documented that? If you put this, because I'm one of these people who does read the labels when I go to the grocery store, and it's true, maybe if I'm not quite sure, you know, evaporated, you're right, evaporated cane juice, not quite sure what that is, but I know it's not sugar, and I don't want to have a lot of sugar in whatever I'm buying. Okay, I'll buy it. Well, it, uh, is, sugar. it is sugar. <laughs> yeah, it is <laughs> yes, sugar. Yes, and but, honestly, people have done that and are doing it. As I said earlier, Henry and I didn't make up anything in this book. Our, we had that very official rule for ourselves, because once you start making it up, then the whole book becomes uh, not believable. And in fact, we have source notes for every single uh, a term in the book just to show where it came from and to show we didn't make it up. Well, I, I mean, you've got some really, I mean, there's some, we're not going to obviously be able to go through all of them today. You can buy the book, bookstores everywhere online. What a great idea. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, but, so we're just kind of wetting people's appetite. But here's one that you hear all the time, entitlement reform, which really means flashing benefits. <laughs> well, that's exactly right. Yes. Uh, and, and, again, reform is one of those great Spanglish words because it means changing something. It doesn't necessarily mean changing it for the better, but that's what everybody assumes. All right, here's another one. I, I, I'm, these are just fascinating. I mean, and they're just, uh, you, you, okay, highly, this is another one you hear all the time, highly leveraged, which means hopelessly in debt. Which Yeah, I, well, it really does if you think yeah. about it. Highly leveraged means that you've borrowed a lot of money to do whatever you're doing. 
uh, and companies that are hopelessly in debt say they're highly leveraged, and it works for people, too. You never want to say you're broke. You just say you're highly leveraged, and people think you're a genius. Well, we have to, I think we've reached the bottom of the hour, and we have to say goodbye, but I do, uh, I, I, I want to obviously mention the book again, the title of the book, Spinglish, the Definitive Dictionary of Deliberately Deceptive Language, and we've been talking to Christopher Cerf, who's the author. It's really a great book. It brings up all kinds of issues, at least for me it did, so I recommend it. Go online. You can buy it, bookstores everywhere online, and also, Chris, is there a website we can go to? Yes, there is. It's um, funny you should ask. Yeah. It's Spinglish, <laughs> Spinglish.com with a hyphen, S-P-I-N hyphen G-L-I-S-H.com. Great. Well, it's been great having you on the show today. Thanks so much for being on, and good luck with the book. Well, thank you very much, Catherine. It was fun. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you have been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away because we'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in each week for Monica Phillips and powerful conversations. This is a thought-provoking show for business people, leaders, and entrepreneurs. We'll feature today's thought leaders and industry trendsetters from across several locations and industries. Give yourself permission to be inspired and live a fulfilling life. Be sure to listen to Powerful Conversations, live every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, my second guest this morning is Tom Gossam, Jr. He's author of A Slice of Life, Life Stories. Tom was the first black athlete to graduate from Auburn University in 1975. A football walk-on, he uh, defied the odds, earned a scholarship, and became a three-year starter. He's featured in the HBO special Breaking the Huddle about the integration of Southern college football his film and television credits include oh, many, many, I can't even uh, mention them all, but Boston Legal, NYPD Blue, Without a Trace, and many more. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Tom. Uh, good morning. Nice to be on. Appreciate okay, it. so, I mean, obviously you're a man of many, many talents, a writer, an author, an actor, uh, a football player and successful at all of those things. Uh, this is obviously, this is, this is a series, I guess. This is a uh, trilogy, and this is the first in, the, in your trilogy, A Slice of Life, Life Stories. Um, and as I understand it, you've also, uh, a few years ago, wrote your memoir. But mm-hmm. we're going to be talking, yeah, Slice of Life. So what's A Slice of Life about? Uh, this is, and uh, just give us a, sort of a, a, an overview. Okay. Yeah. It's... it's, it's um... I've always been a fan of short stories. I've always been a fan of James Baldwin and uh, just always uh, tooted around with, with, with short stories. And uh, I think the first book, A Slice of Life, sort of reflects the, the eras of the 60s and 70s, uh, 
my life growing up in the South. Uh, I've always sort of fancied myself a storyteller, and whether it's film, whether it's um, whether it's 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 the written word or, or acting. And um, the second book is another slice of life, which takes place primarily in the '80s and '90s. Uh, and then the third book, uh, and they're all written already. The third book is, um, um, I'm actually hesitating because I got a fourth book on my mind. Third, <laughs> all right, forget the, the third. third. Go stick with the third and then, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I got to do the third one first, right? The, the third book is The Rest of the Pie. And um, it's ba- there's, the third book sort of reflects a lot of stories in Los Angeles and Hollywood, a lot of stories about, quote, the business and, and Northwest Florida, where uh, I currently reside. So it's, 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 I always call it ordinary people doing extraordinary things or caught up in their extraordinary moment of truth and, and, and how they deal with that. Okay, so if we start with the first book, it's, they're life stories, but they're not necessarily true stories. They're life right, stories. Right, right. So, you take, you take a, a, an instance, uh, maybe you hear something. Um, uh, there was always a guy in Los Angeles that was uh, a homeless man that that uh, lived a block down from me. And um, uh, throughout the day, he would move from different corners to different corners uh surrounding the condo he'd start out in this corner by midday be at this corner that the end of the day be at this corner and by the night he'd be back where he started and i just always wondered about this guy who is this guy how did he get to this point in his life and so you make up a story you give him a life um you give him a name and uh uh, and you just you give him a life. You you make up a story based on a lot of experience and things that maybe I, I I've seen or done. You know, being involved in uh, athletics, uh, being involved in higher ed, being involved in corporate America. Um, you see a lot of stories, and so generally, you know, we we watch the stories in the movies, and and you know, those are the the, the heroes always win pretty much. But in life, um, sometimes you win, sometimes you don't, and. So, so Tom, what can we reflect that? Well, what can we learn from? Like you say, we look at we have all, feel, and obviously, uh, mm-hmm. you are part of the uh, the film industry and television and stuff. Yeah, and we always mm-hmm. look everybody's you know these, these heroes, and we look up to mm-hmm. them, and we see how they and we you know they um, are are um, you know, celebrities. But you're mm-hmm. saying like we can learn from ordinary people. Your stories, like ordinary people doing extraordinary things or maybe not such mm-hmm. extraordinary things, but we can kind of glean from them. We can learn from them that they, that their stories will impact on the choices that we may have to make or choose, to, you know, that we have to make in our own ordinary lives. Exactly. Everybody has a story. And um, in this particular book, uh, I'll give you for an example, the story just like television um, it's, it's, it's the story of a robbery that takes place out of, at a 7-Eleven, uh, quick march store. And the one guy, there are three guys who go to commit this robbery and the one guy doesn't want to do it, but he doesn't have the courage to say that he doesn't want to do it. And so he ends up putting himself in a position that will influence and change the rest of his life. Um, a, a, a couple of hours, a set of circumstances that had he lived differently would have been would have come out differently um the the first story is called the crimson tide which is really interesting because if you know anything about Auburn and alabama football i'm an Auburn guy and so you don't write stories about alabama people but uh <laughs> this story is really about a father and son it isn't about sports at all sports is the background but it's about a father and son and what drives them apart uh and what one day brings them back together um uh, and so you, you, you find those circumstances and, and, um, um, you, 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 generally the characters lead you where they want to go. So how much, how many or how, uh, or how much of you, let's say, and your choices that you had to make growing <laughs> up or on the, along the way, uh, are sort of incorporated into these characters or these stories? I, I think... The, maybe the, there, there, there are a couple of stories in the first book about kids, 
Um, uh, and, and I think I'm reflected in, in some of those stories about the, uh, the younger people. Um, I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. I grew up in segregated Birmingham, Alabama, but I grew, but my, but I had a wonderful growing up period. I'd lived in a neighborhood, of course, which was all black, but I was cherished and I was loved. And, um, I was told that I could be something. And so there was always this encouragement in this neighborhood. And so the stories about the old neighborhood, uh, I've taken a lot of liberties, but they're pretty positive stories in terms of how I was able to grow up in the South with all the things going on down, you know, five, five, ten miles away, uh, all hell was breaking loose. Um, and, and so, uh, those stories probably have more me in them. Uh, than anything, but the other stories are basically observation, uh, observations of the world and, and, and how I have seen it. Um, and again, I go back to the writers and one of the great things about being on in, at Auburn University at the time, being a football player, I went without a scholarship and I earned a scholarship. And so for the next three to four years, uh, everything uh, regarding school was paid for, which meant I got to get a lot of free books. And uh, I, my, all, the, I, I, all the, the top fiction writing of that time, I probably read it all um, and just sort of stored all these things away. And, and in most of those books and in most of those stories, and the same thing in film, you know, in a film, in the first 10 minutes, the character's life slipped upside down. Or whatever that may be, the, the woman's left standing at the altar, or um, some murder happens, and somebody's on the run for the rest of the film, or whatever. And, and so um, I was able to take those circumstances, but uh, because of a lot of that reading, and 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 you know, I I always invoke James Baldwin's name just because uh, uh, that's sort of what I aspire to. Well, I mean, you it, just taking it back a little. You're talking about, as I understand. Um, I mean, you were, you know, I, I mean, growing up in this, I, I don't know what you would call it, like in this, I mean, we're, we're a similar age, I think, but uh, mm-hmm. in, in the 60s and, and, and uh, mm-hmm. in that sort of that atmosphere of uh, uh, racism and hatred, mm-hmm. and then you're, and, and, and just thinking about what you did, uh, but, and you talk about your environment, but I think one of the things, at least, it seems that you had a very, supportive family and, and I think you've mentioned particularly your your mother who uh you mm-hmm. know valued education she also had mm-hmm. a smart son to work with uh but uh so that you went to school not necessarily to play football but for mm-hmm. to study you got ex- and and which makes a difference right uh, um yeah, in term, yeah very, term- very much so I in 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 the memoir it's called walk on my reluctant journey to integration at Auburn University um a lot of that's reflected. Uh, somebody sent me a photo uh, through the Internet, and it's a picture of me. And I must have been, um, I don't know, maybe eight, nine years old. Uh, I went to Catholic schools, uh, and so I, I always wore a tie every day and a white shirt and, and blue pants and high school gray pants. And there's this little boy, and he just has this incredible smile on his face. Like, he is just in love with life. And I don't think that little boy has ever left me. Uh, I kept that picture because uh, that little boy is still inside of me. And you're absolutely right. I had an incredible uh, support system. Um, We didn't have a lot of money. uh, and, And I tell people I went to private school for 12 years, and my sisters went to private school for 12 years. But my dad had three jobs. And um, my dad worked during the day, and then he had a cleaning job at night, and then on weekends he would do plumbing. And education was a priority in our family, but not just education, dreaming, uh, believing that you could be a part of what was out there in the world, irrespective of what else was going on. And so when I went to high school, I went to, I was one of six black kids, uh, black freshmen at my high school, Catholic high school. And uh, it was in this beautiful part of town. I caught two buses to go all the way across town to go to this high school. But uh, And it was the beginning of the integration period. And if you can imagine that, um, I was in a world that nobody in my neighborhood, nobody in my family 
nobody I knew had ever been in before. And so I learned to, to navigate two worlds, uh, the world I lived in and the world I went to school in. But the people at that school were just wonderful to me. And, and I ended up with a lady who became my best friend until she died, my, one of my teachers, who was just very, very encouraging in terms of my writing and my doing things. And you're absolutely right. Football was, was an extracurricular activity. And, and luckily, I ended up getting good at it. Um, but it wasn't my purpose in, in, in being in school. But, Tom, you, you mentioned, okay, you sort of led two parallel lives, um, mm-hmm. one that was very supportive and then the other one that was embroiled in a lot of, of mm-hmm. as I, you know, uh, just, you know, horrible, uh, you know, racism at the time and all those kinds of things. Did you ever feel, I mean, like, angry that you had to do that? I mean, that's a burden to put on, you know, you're yeah. talking about the smiling young boy and in high school yeah. and, yes, great teachers and mentors and family, but to do that, yeah, yeah. so there must, you yeah. know. You have to, you, you, you have to hide yourself, and uh, it's unfortunate that you have to do that because uh, I think, let's see, 75, about 20, 22, 23 years later, uh, I married, and um, my wife told me how angry I was, and I didn't realize how angry I was because I'd always hid it. I'd always hid behind the mask of, of the smile and uh, just doing the duties and the tasks and the things. You know, football was my job, and so I did my job for four years. High school was great. Going to college uh, where it was almost uh, going back into time, um, going from being cherished and loved to going to be ignored uh, and being invisible was very, very difficult for a long time. And I think I'm writing these stories now, although they're not directly related to, but, I, but, but, it, but it also uh, allows people to see who I am. Uh, because I hid myself for so long. I mean, I was a great guy. I was a great teammate. I was a good friend to people. I always have, I always had and still have the smile. But, yeah, there was an anger beneath it all that, that said, why do I have to do this? You know, and if you think about it, I mean, when I was in high school, I was 14 years old, we, um, we, uh, I was on the basketball team, integrated the sports in my high school. Um, we practiced all along on the freshman team. We came to the first two games of the season, and they were at the more affluent schools in our area. And um, they told me I couldn't play. And they told me that um, not only could I not play, I couldn't even go and be set my foot in their gym. And, uh, you know, when you're 14 years old, that's sort of difficult. Uh, it was difficult for my parents because what could they do? Uh, they were second-class citizens, uh, according to the social standards of that time. And so uh, my coach, I had a great coach who sat down and talked to me and told me that this was about more than basketball. It was about changing a way of life in Birmingham. But when you're 14, it's like, okay, why am I the one that has to just solve these issues? And so that was a theme for me, and it has been a theme for me. Um um, going to Auburn, where I, I walked onto the team. Um, you know, there was one other black athlete on the football team at that time. Uh, and, uh, and now you fast forward to um, 40-some-odd years later, and I'm chair of the Auburn University Foundation Board, which manages the endowment of about $650 million. And so... Uh, you know, that's the story in itself. <laughs> that's yeah, that's a story. story. I mean, that's a great ending. And how do you? I would imagine now that you obviously you're in this, you're in the position of, of of power and the position to be able to um, mentor and, and and do all kinds of things uh, for the students. Um, mm-hmm. Do do you? I mean, is this something that you you know you said your wife was the one who made no, you realize how we're both involved in higher ed. As a matter of fact, I, I do special projects for the university. Um, the medical college, we have a medical college that, that opened its first class this year at the university. That was one of my projects. Um, we commemorated 50 years of desegregation at the university, a year-long commemoration over the past, uh, I think, uh, 2013, 2014. I was the co-chair of that. 
So I do special things out of the office of the president. Uh, we're in the process right now at the university, which my wife is uh, very involved in, of uh, reconfiguring uh, how we deal with diversity and inclusiveness at the university. And so there are a lot of good things going on. It's great to have a, a, a great story is my um, my freshman year, um, there were about 10 or 12 black kids. We had about 30, 40 black kids out of 14,000 students. And, um, but we, we got all, we worked ourselves up into a frenzy and we marched on the president's office and it was about 10 or 12 of us. And I always say it's the funniest march you've ever seen because we didn't have any signs. We weren't singing. We weren't doing anything. We were just walking up the street. And so nobody really knew we were marching, you know, they just figured we were going to lunch or something. So we, uh, we marched to the president's office and we sat down and we had a list of demands that we gave to the president who was very accommodating, sat and listened to us. And he did start to make those changes. But I think the, the thing when you talk about a story being in everything is, uh, and I've written a story, it's included in one of the second books. And it's in that same conference room that we marched on. Uh, I now have meetings with the senior administrators of the university. And so that's going, I guess, full circle in terms of being there as a young man and now being there today. Uh, well, now, I want to ask you because you, I mean, you're talking about going full circle and going full circle for you, obviously. What do you see? Because now you've had the opportunity to obviously your experiences that you just described, and now you look at the young students. Uh, do, I mean. What, what's the difference? What do you see that's different in them? The great thing about the young students today, and I think from 2000 on, um, they're just having a great experience. And uh, that's just a beautiful thing. Yeah, I mean, there's still some things. And when, when numbers are so, um, you know, when, when numbers are 75% for one ethnicity and 5% for another. But yeah, you still have that feeling of being a minority in terms of numbers. But the kids who come out there today, they are, they are one in terms of being uh, members of the Auburn family. And uh, that, that's a beautiful thing to see. Um, you know, it's a different world. I remember I, for a long time I never talked to my um Matter of fact, I could never talk about this for, without crying for the longest. Uh, but I, I, would, I never talked to my wife and my son about my experiences uh, until probably 2002. We were going to a 30-year reunion of this great team. We had great football teams. We finished number five, number eight, and number nine. And myself and James were the first two African-American athletes to ever play at the university. And, and I remember telling my son some of the things that went on and he said, oh, Dad, come on, you're kidding. Nobody would do that to anybody. <laughs> and it was great that he felt that way. And it's great that we made such an effort to make sure that um, he saw the world as, as, as his oyster as opposed to something that would oppress him. But um, I'm proud of, of where, those, where the kids are. We still have a lot of work to do, uh, and perhaps at other southern universities, because we probably lost a couple of generations of students of alumni who went away angry uh, because they didn't have a positive experience. And so we're really working on that at the university to bring those alumni back, uh, to bring them and get them involved in their university and embrace them. But I think the kids of the day, we're, we're okay in that aspect. Uh, that's not to say that we don't have some issues that we need to deal with. But mm -hmm. well, that's why, that's why you're there. That's why they need yes. well, One of the reasons, obviously, they need you. But, you know, one of the things that you were talking about, the, the students, I'm always interested because I see one thing that, that the young people today um, that you come in contact with, and I, I'm, I work also at the university here at University of Albany um, mm -hmm. in uh, New York, uh, they don't, different than our generation, and I grew up um, as a, a Jew in a very small town and had somewhat similar experiences of, uh, mm -hmm. you know, you've got to behave in a certain way if you want to be accepted, but they don't make excuses for themselves. It, it, you know, yeah. they don't, whatever, and there's still conflict, there's still all this stuff going on, it, you know, um, obviously, but they do not make excuses for themselves, which I see is such a big shift, say, from... 40 or 50 years ago, whatever the circumstances mm -hmm. are. 
which is mm-hmm. such a positive, what, which I see anyway as a positive thing. Well, I, I, and I see it as, as a positive as well. And uh, we do, I do a lot of work with the athletes, uh, um, not necessarily on their respective field or court or whatever, but uh, life skills and um, just uh, helping them negotiate how you get through, uh, um, how you transition from athletics to, to life, uh, because we all have to transition at some point. What would you say were some of the, I mean, if you had to take one or two of, of very specific issues that, that the students are wrestling with, um, what would you say those are today? I think um, the students, what, what I see is there is a, we, as, as ugly as racism was, and, and as beautiful as the goal of civil rights was, uh, it always focused us. We knew what the goal was. We knew what we had to overcome. We knew where we were going. I think because things are, are different, uh, there's so much other stuff going on. Perhaps a singular focus is, is missing in a lot of areas. Uh, we have more students today, I think, across the country that end up having, I mean, we have students committing suicide on college campuses across the country. And I don't remember us having that. So I think there's a different stress, a different anxiety level for them. Um, there is, you know, there is, a, I don't think that there is that dream. You know, my dad worked 35 years in a pipe shop and he got a watch and he got a pension for the rest of his life. Uh, but there aren't those things out there to look forward to graduate and you get this job that you're going to work at the rest of your life and so on and so forth. And so I think they have a different, uh, a different way of looking at life, uh, a different, um, there's, there, I, a lot of the kids, I got involved with a, with a group of kids in a leadership program, the leadership program, but we called it leadership. And, um, uh, um, those kids are now graduating and they're out there and I'm, I'm following them and some of them are doing really well. They're all doing well, but some of them aren't where they thought they would be in terms of income, in terms of job potential, so on and so forth. And so I, I think there's this, um, you know, the Internet and all that has made things really simple and really quick and really fast. And so maybe there's that realization that, uh, life isn't really quick and really simple and really fast. Yeah, I think that's uh, an excellent we have come to the end of this half hour. It went by very quickly. I, I hate to cut you off because there's a lot more that you and I could talk about. But I just so. But I do want to make sure. Uh, I have to have you on the show again. But I mean, a slice of life, life stories. Tom Gossam. You can get the book, bookstores everywhere, online. Uh, website that we can go to quickly, Tom, so that if Best people girl, have yeah. B-E-S-T-G-U-R-L, bestgirl.com. Great. Girl with a U. Perfect. Thanks so much for being on the show. I enjoyed it very much. Thank so you. So did I. Uh, we're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your okay. social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week. We'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.